Welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a new friend of mine, a new a new good buddy of mine, Jim Smallman of, of Progress Wrestling fame, of of his 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 book about pro wrestling of NXT UK fame uh, and and someone I've wanted to meet for a very long time and someone I'd I'd longed to have as a guest on the show and finally it has happened more than that in one second but first if you want to get in touch with me head over to the email address turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com or the Facebook page for Turn Out a Punk both of those are run by my brother and show producer and most weeks guest Booker Extraordinaire. Tristan Abraham, who um, this week did not book the guest. This was my own. This is one of my ones. But uh, Tristan, I love you for everything you do for this podcast and and does not ask for much in return. You know, just kick him the odd rare record. You know, that's what he really wants me to do. And, that, and that's what I try and do. Uh, so thank you, Tristan, for that. Uh, also, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien, and you can get messages to me either of those ways. You can also find ways of supporting this show by heading over to the patreon.com slash turned out a punk page where there are footnotes podcasts being put up there. There's some merch that's being sent out from there. There's some, uh, you know, lots of stuff going on over there that, that is, uh, kicking into higher gear now. So head over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk. You can also support this podcast just by telling your friends, just by subscribing to it and rating it, uh, give it a five-star rating on your podcast, listening to app of choice and, uh, but yeah, mainly just tell your friends about it. That, that's the best way to support this thing. Uh, speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came aboard a couple years ago and said, you do your thing, Damien. We just don't want you to have to do it out of your own pocket. And I have been trying to do that. So thank you so much to everyone at Vans for that, you know, thing, you know, <laughs> let me do this thing and not lose money on it. Thank you. Yay. All right. I think that's it. On to today's show. Today on the show, my buddy, my new friend, Jim Smallman. Jim is someone that uh, I knew about from a distance through social media and more from being a fan of this wrestling company, Progress Wrestling, which he helped start. And I think you get an idea of the significance of this company when you listen to this episode of the show. But just to give you a little more context for you not necessarily wrestling fans, uh, there was a, a barren kind of landscape in the UK when it came to pro wrestling. There were definitely shows still happening and, and holiday camps, but but UK wrestling, this fabed, famous, fabled kind of world of sport world of UK wrestling had been all but wiped out by the WWE when they kind of came in and got extremely popular and, and you know, just people's lust for the most popular wrestling product available to them. And, and the, the wrestling product it was, and still is the WWE for a lot of people, but then progress wrestling and, and, you know, Jim details the other companies as well that emerged kind of gave people a, an alternative. And it really was a DIY punk rock response to what had happened in wrestling in the UK. And that's why I've always been so fascinated with it. You know, like in addition to the fact that I love pro wrestling, but this is like a real punk rock story. And you get that sense when you listen to Jim talk. So I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I want you to sit back, relax, and enjoy Jim Smallman on Turned Out a Punk. (laughs) 
Uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Well, this has been a long time coming. Like, us trying to schedule it, I mean. Mm. But even longer that I've been wanting to do this. Because I was telling you before, uh, I and once again, shout out to a uh, friend of the show, Alex Greenfield, for doing it. But he was championing progress from some of the earliest chapters, at least for my years. And that's where I kind of got into it. And, like, you know, the punk rock wrestling promotion. And then... Mm. Watching that actually execute as a punk rock wrestling promotion, uh, yeah, I want to do this. <laughs> well, it's it's we've been saying this before we started recording as well. Like, so Alex is someone who, like, I just kind of became friends with because of wrestling. Like, that's the yeah. great thing about wrestling is, and I try and spend as much time as possible talking to anybody who wants to talk to me about wrestling, whether it's at a show or on social media or whatever. And now we're at a point where because of wrestling people that I like in bands that I like now like wrestling like yourself and, now, uh, and, and I get to chat with them and hang out with them which is which is really weird for me because to me I still every single show that Progress has ever done I still view it as oh there's only a couple of hundred people there like the first ever show 300 people and all we wanted to do was not lose all of our money <laughs> that was the only and we were going to do one show and then we were going to get out of there and never do another show that was the plan it was just uh, me and John at the time Glenn our third partner came in after the second show but the first show it was just let's do this let's put an indie show on let's hope we don't lose all of our money then let's just get out of there and say we did it and then about halfway through the show one it was like oh, we should probably do this again and then another one and then another one and then instead of every three months we'll do one every two months and then every month and then every two weeks and then to the point where it takes over your entire life <laughs> Well, we're going to get there because mm. I'm going to punish you about that. But before <laughs> we do, I want to find out how you got into punk. Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? So my dad, when I was a kid, uh, was a mobile disco DJ. Okay. So I was born in 78. And he, it turns out, I, I, didn't, I mentioned this to you earlier on, but I didn't know this until much later in the early 70s he was not doing northern he was basically northern soul dj that's so, awesome uh, so he was he was really into like really cool music which i didn't realize because for a long time i thought my dad was only into really lame stuff <laughs> and so when i was a kid uh, so I, my middle name is daniel mm-hmm. after the elton john song right so my dad was really into that sort of overblown overproduced uh, 70s stuff that that's what his record collection seemed to be in our house that's what he listened to yeah um, and he was a mobile disco DJ around the time I was born until I was probably two or three so we'd go and do like kids parties weddings and whatever and it was one, mainly just top 40 stuff I guess oh, he was playing that time yeah, all yeah. the time and one day we're driving in my dad's car and I must have been probably seven or eight years old mm-hmm. and we're driving in my dad's car and we're listening to a show on Radio 1 called The Golden Hour, which is where you have to guess the year based on the older records that they play. Okay. And they play White Riot by The Clash. And when they play it, there's a siren at the beginning, and I'm a kid who likes cars and stuff, so I hear a siren, I'm like, well, I'm already on board. There's a <laughs> siren. And then the, sh- the song starts, and I never heard anything like it, and I remember thinking, that's amazing. And the song goes on for maybe 20 seconds, and my dad switches the radio off and says to me, um, I'm not having you listen to music like that. And I said, it's why it's really cool. And he said, do you remember when I used to run a disco when I, you were little? I was like, yeah. And he said, well, once, he used to run it with his best friend, I forget his name. He said, well, once, 
we put a record on we were doing a gig in a church hall and we put a record on by mistake and it was that record there that was just on and when we put the record on the entire place got destroyed <laughs> so he tells me this at like seven or eight years old and I'm like fuck I'm listening to all of that music <laughs> you're like so from now on that is so the only thing I will listen to and then when I was uh, in my teens there I think I used to read like music papers all the time and I and that's a part of a British cultural thing that yeah. we don't really have here in the same way like, if you go into my dad's uh, garage at home he's still got like stacks of the old uh, copies of the enemy yeah like proper yellowing newspaper Newspa- the newsprint thing yeah and I used to read it every week because my dad was a music fan my dad like had just a room full of CDs and stuff that he just loved music and he'd listen to most things and, and ironically now when I started stand up my dad used to drive me to gigs when I was an open spot because I was poor <laughs> and was the most supportive person in the world and we'd take my iPod and I'd put my music on and he has gradually become a Clash fan over the course of the years <laughs> through me list, me playing him. So, um... He's forgiven the riders. Yeah, yes. Like, but... Yeah, so I, um... I'd read The Enemy every week and then I'd learn more and more about music and then they, they had lots of stuff about sort of the anniversary of the initial punk movement. Mm-hmm. And I became really obsessed with it. And like, I've always I've dressed the same since I was a kid. I was I was in skateboarding and stuff, and I've I've never changed how I dress. The only difference now is I'm I'm older. I have less hair and I have more tattoos. Like, I've been the same kid since I was roughly sixteen, seventeen. Um, and I remember around this sort of time, this was the anniversary of nineteen seventy six, which like most British people view as the 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 genesis of punk. And it's yeah. interesting. If you spend time in North America, it's interesting that um, in Britain we go, well, we invented punk music. Like, that's that's the British press is, well, we invented it because yeah. the Sex Pistols were British, but we don't think of... The Ramones. We don't or, think of the Ramones or MC5 yeah. or bands like that yeah. before it or the Stooges. We don't... They're not in our lexicon as much as... It's just... Well, punk started with the Sex Pistols. Which is so weird because they ignore Dr. Feelgood and they ignore, yeah. like, the... Th- the like, pub rock, fairies. The pub rock yeah, thing, yeah, like, yeah. all this stuff that was happening in the UK, too, that, you know... Pr- like directly foretells the punk rock thing but yeah you're right like it's it's very much like a codified history that this thing emerged in 1976 out of nowhere yeah and, and but what I did enjoy I think the thing that resonated with me was knowing that first of all I really wanted to be in a band mm-hmm. I have no musical talent whatsoever but I was like well I'm confident enough to sing so maybe we'll do that so I was briefly in a terrible terrible covers band really what was it called it was called Standstill we were rotten Um, uh, and we never played a gig because we were so bad the only but we became became obsessed with doing covers like I've always loved like any band doing covers yeah like I've got playlist after playlist on my phone of just like as many different cover versions as possible because it's something really cool about it and then I found out that most punk bands B-sides 76, 77, 78 were often covers of Buddy Holly songs or whatever mm-hmm. I'm like oh that's where it started so that's what we should do like we did a like a cover of Dancing Queen by ABBA that lasted <laughs> roughly 42 seconds it was dreadful we were so awful who were the influences on you at this point like you obviously you got in the, the Pistols or the Clash stuff but like where'd you kind of go from there it's, so the covers thing like yeah. I remember like just going to there's a record shop in Leicester which is my hometown called Rockaboom and I remember when I was a university student I'd go in there and I'd just buy anything that was weird and I remember buying a compilation by the Dickies <laughs> it was just like and it was just cover versions and I was like but this is exactly what I want out of music now <laughs> um, uh, and and then the more I read up about it the more um, 
the more I got into different stuff, so realizing that like Black Flag and Minor Threat was something that I could enjoy mm-hmm. was because again, we, it, it it seems crazy now, especially like having like done music festivals. Henry Rollins been there doing like spoken word and whatever. <laughs> uh, having met him and and stuff, it seems crazy that there was a point where the only time you'd really hear him in the UK was when they'd play the one of his his hit solo records. Yeah, play Liar or something. Liar, yeah, that's yeah, the one. Yeah. That's the only time, and, and you had no concept of how ridiculously amazing Black Flag was. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think it's that thing of... You'd get, like, punk compilations in the UK that would have... Um, certainly around this time that would have stuff that was clearly very influenced by Sex Pistols and people just trying to be sort of a caricature of the Sex Pistols which is mad because you're being a caricature of a caricature because <laughs> yeah. they are not they are not in any like The Clash are a fantastic band who stand the test of time I don't think many people now listen to Pistols records and go well you picked up fighting words on this podcast <laughs> I will take never mind the bollocks yeah. over any Clash record <laughs> any Clash record <laughs> And we were getting on so well. I know this is like the first thing we've done everything, everything you've said I've been like yep right on preach preach and now you finally found the one no but I, I definitely agree with you the Clash are the better band but the Sex Pistols to me are such a confluence of time and space that could never happen again that, if you if it comes down to who's the most important band mm-hmm. they are for me the most important band ever yeah because if they hadn't have come onto the scene in the UK we would literally everyone every band would be Genesis yeah, <laughs> like yeah. no one wants that. No, no like, that's the future. No one wants. I, um, I am unfortunate in that um, quite a lot of my social media followers and my own wife um, mock me all the time about being a closet Phil Collins fan. I am not. This was started by William Regal um, because he thinks it's funny. Um, <laughs> and like <laughs> Genesis is the worst thing that's ever happened to music. And if we, that's but that's what British music was going. Yeah, it was incredibly overblown, and everything was every fucking track was eleven minutes long mm-hmm. do you know what I mean mm-hmm. and we needed the Sex Pistols we needed that to happen but then I think from beyond that era I then became as obsessed with post-punk so yeah. in particular like bands like Joy Division for me are a huge deal um, because <laughs> partly because I was an incredibly miserable teenager <laughs> like I needed music like that the, the early Cure stuff is you know is nuts oh, it's incredible I go, I ride all the way with the Cure yeah I watch I made my my poor long-suffering wife watch a three-hour Cure concert the other night where they did uh... your marriage sounds very similar to mine <laughs> <laughs> see it's, it's the pistols clash divide that's the only thing that separates us um, but uh, no and, and the cannabis thing because you being a straight-edge warrior and me being a, a stoner warrior it's... But, but it's like I explained to you before like I'm very I'm kind of mellow about being straight-edge like I went to I went, and it's cool because there's lots of lots of my friends within wrestling are guys who are straight edge. Mm-hmm. So like Brody King and Ricky Shane Page mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. like that. They're my, my friends because we're all straight edge and we're own little we're own little corner of the world of wrestling. Um, but I'm not. I'm so I've become more militant in being straight edge since I stopped doing stand up. Because for a long time I had to. It's that weird bit of acceptance that I had to have in that I'm straight edge and I'm straight edge for my own reasons and I'm very proud of it. But on the flip side of that, I'd spend every night entertaining drunk people. Yeah, it pays the bills. And, and it was just like, well, that's why I've got to do it. But now I don't have to do it anymore. I've become a little <laughs> bit more militant about drinking. Weed, on the other hand, I'm kind of cool with. Yeah. Because I don't... I don't... I can't do it. Like, for my own... Personally, from, from being straight edge and my own beliefs, that's fine. But also, even if I wasn't straight edge, like, my brain is wide in a certain way. And before I was... I wasn't straight edge until I was 20. I'm... 
leading up to that, I did anything that came in front of me. Mm-hmm. And knowing what my personality is like, if I allowed myself, I'd just be like, I'd never leave the house, I'd never get any work done because I can't do anything in moderation. Mm-hmm. I know that about me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, maybe I could now because it's been 21 years, but I'm very, I, I'm an unusual straight edge man in that I'm kind of, in as much as I can be pro anything, I'm pro weed more than anything else. Yeah. Um, I mean, it'd be great if everyone was completely sober, but let's be honest, um, it ain't for everybody. No, there's some people that need the weed. Well, <laughs> or I, safer. My, my wife being one of them. Yeah, like, me. I, I, and 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 it, it doesn't. Having spent a week in Toronto where weed's legal, and realizing what a peaceful place it is, like I've seen no trouble, no issues from anybody. And you just get used to smelling it on the street all the yep. time. It's like, yeah. what is... Oh, yeah. Um, it's and, and our attitude towards marijuana in the UK is antiquated. Like, my yeah. mum my was alive. She had multiple sclerosis. Marijuana would have massively helped it. You can't even... You, you just get into a point now... I think there's, a, there's, a, there's one case about a, a little boy who's allowed cannabis-based drugs... For his, I think it's for his epilepsy. Yep, for the seizures, seizures. And but his mum has to go to the Netherlands to get it and bring it back, and she oh, keeps getting oh. stopped every time she comes back. And it's like, come on, why? Yeah, well, we we very f- feels like the UK government's very frightened of stuff like that. In the same way, but you know, the alcohol industry in the UK is incredibly powerful. The tobacco industry is incredibly powerful, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that, maybe that's it. I mean, maybe that's the reason that they're frightened that, you know, all of a sudden you legalize marijuana and people will stop doing those things. Yeah, and of any country that will get recreational cannabis, I'm most intrigued to see it kind of come to the countries which have such a strong booze culture, mm. you know? And, like, the pub culture in the UK is it's, it's so much larger than just drinking, yeah. but the, the nighttime pub culture there is fucking gnarly. Well, that's the thing is, like, it, it's, it's seen as a rite of passage for... This is something that always bugs me. Like, so you see, you'll see a, a, a parent or grandparent with a kid in a beer garden in a pub mm-hmm. when they're like the kid's like seven or eight years old, maybe even younger, and they'll go and it's something weird about it. my parents did this to me as well. They'll be like, "Oh, you just have a sip of this beer." Why? Yeah, <laughs> that is not acceptable behaviour. You're a parent. What the fuck are you doing? Right? Like, how is that kid's life going to be improved in any no, way? Right. Why are you doing? And all they do, and the kid will do it and go, "Oh, it's horrible." Right? Yeah. Just don't do it. Make him eat if, a lemon instead. That's the hilarious thing to do. Right? Don't. No one. No one's there smoking a cigarette, going, "Just have a little bit of this, little Timmy." Yeah. No, because that you would rightly be locked up as a parent. But but in the UK, we're so relaxed towards alcohol despite the fact we've got a massive problem with it well like wasn't I, I remember at one point there was like a Guinness I don't know if it was an ad but the idea that you gave a kid a couple spoonfuls of Guinness to well they tell you when uh, they tell women when you're pregnant like they recommend that you yeah, drink, exactly. drink a pint of Guinness every week and yeah. it's like nah <laughs> nah that's not a good idea like, it, it's like it, who did this study it's like Mr. and Mr. Guinness <laughs> yeah and, and it's I, I, I try not to be I've always tried not to be preachy about it. This is a, a discussion we had over lunch. Yeah. It's like, like, I'm an atheist. I try not to be a, be a dick about being an atheist because there's plenty of people, there's plenty of people I know, people who are close friends of mine who are super religious. And, and growing up where I grew up in Leicester, it's not just Christianity. I've got friends who are Muslims and friends who are Hindus. And, like, 
what they believe in is what they believe in. What I believe in is what I believe in. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. And having that Richard Dawkins-like attitude towards being an atheist of, well, I'm definitely in the right. Why? Well, because I am. Because I'm smarter than you. No, I'm not smarter than anybody. I just yeah. believe what I believe. And it's interesting, I had this, when my daughter was maybe sort of 10 or 11 years old, and she doesn't live with me. And I remember her just driving along, and she going, do you believe in God? And me having to explain why I didn't. And that kind of made it a bit more realistic and and made me not want to scare her by being all the other way. Because mm-hmm. most atheists' problem with uh, with religion is people pushing it on people. So why should you, when you're an atheist, mm-hmm. push that on people like Richard Dawkins does? It's just, it, it's just I, I'm a big believer in just, hey, this is my life. This is the little bubble I live in, my little straight-edge atheist bubble. That's where I do my stuff, and I get on with that. And I'm kind of cool with whatever anyone does, just as long as they, they follow the rule of progress, which is not being a dick. Like... That's all. That's all people need to do, really. So all people need in life is not to be a dick. <laughs> yeah. It would be just a lot it better. Just, it's it's so easy. Yeah. Like this is a, a great thing from from punk culture that I used to do at progress shows, and it and it's the don't be a dick thing came from uh, that I say at the start of every show that came from a little mixture of me being an, an MC in the world of comedy for so long and telling audiences to behave themselves. Mm-hmm. And a little bit from going to punk gigs and that whole tenet of if someone falls down, you pick them back up, mm-hmm. right? And like to a lot of people, that's you. You wouldn't. You shouldn't even need to. Like I think anyone who's into the music that we're into is like, oh yeah, I get that. That's completely fine because you can go to you can go to fucking. I don't go to as many gigs as I used to go to. I went, I remember going to watch um, Gallows in uh, Nottingham, Rock City, in Nottingham. Which singer, Wade or Frank? It's Frank. Okay, yeah, yeah. It was great when Grey Britain. Okay, uh, yeah. Not long been out. Um, I believe was they. That one, fuck. We were we opening. I don't think so. Maybe we, we opened for them actually on the tour before that one. I think. And um, so. I went to see them and it was it was great but this is why I'm in my mid to late 30s at yeah. this point I'm like no, this is too violent for me now <laughs> but when I was a kid that would have been great for me but now I'm just going to stand on the back and just nod my head and enjoy myself um, but at no point did I look at that and go this is stupid no it isn't because it's a form of expression it's like mm-hmm. when I realised that um being straight edge meant I could go and watch fucking hardcore bands and I could that that was my release like it wasn't I didn't need to get hammered to go and do it I could go and get sweaty and be in a fucking mosh pit. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that's a rite of passage that it, it, everyone needs. It shouldn't just your life shouldn't just be about. There's far too many, especially in the UK. There's far too many people who get to 17, 18, and it's like, well, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we go get drunk, and the rest of the week we go to work. And, and I always wanted to experience different things. And I don't know if if part of that is you know is based around that initial conversation I had with my dad about you can't listen to this thing and always being told that you can't do something a certain way because you know you can't I've never been apart from being in a band for a brief amount of time I'm always in awe of anyone who's in a band anyone with musical skill because I've got none and music brings that me that doesn't have to stop you trust me <laughs> but music brings me so much joy <laughs> no, but you can just do it trust me you don't need skill at all, at all, at all. <laughs> but it brings me so much joy and has done for years it's got me to you know the the two or three thousand stand-up gigs I did everything I got to every single one of them by listening to music I got you know right before I went on stage to get me in the right mindset I specific place playlist I listen to to get me into the fucking mood mm-hmm. and I've always been in in awe of that and I remember being at, at university and wanted to be a music journalist and everyone always you know little bands always being told oh but you, you know you need this to happen this to happen this to happen and I'd always think well but that's not how people did it in 1976 to 1978 that wasn't what people were doing 
you know, and eventually there was a point where it became homogenised and, and people did need to follow down the original path again. And you look at how music turned in the UK in the mid-80s mm-hmm. and it became even more polished and glossy than yeah. it was in the late 70s. But it's still... I've always had that thing of someone telling me you can't do something. I'm like, oh, okay, I think I'm going to do it. And obviously, like, this is different than a normal podcast because I'm not going back to all this stuff. But I just really want to get into this with you because I mm. think, I think when Progress came out and like exploded like that was the first time like you're talking about like don't be a dick i think the progress fans the fans that came out of those shows that was like the archetype for the new type of wrestling fan that you see around the world now Mm. like you go to shows before and there are definitely people that you know knew not to say horrible things to the wrestlers there are definitely people that knew not to yell homophobic shit out Mm. but you weren't crowd shamed for doing that But now, with Progress, it was different. It yeah. was like, this was a... It was almost like you, you started from scratch mm. with I, everything. I... So I always... So when we start, ran our first show, we didn't know what we were doing. Like, nearly every independent wrestling promotion is run by a wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, the three of us are not wrestlers. Me, stand-up comedian and writer. John was my manager for a long time in the world of comedy and the show producer. Uh, Glenn, an actor. Mm-hmm. And he played Buddy Holly in the Buddy Holly story for like a decade, right? <laughs> none of us were wrestling fans, huge wrestling fans, but none of us know what we're doing. Yeah. Which meant we came at it from a different angle. So, and I'm a, I was only the ring announcer by accident. So, <laughs> we couldn't afford to pay a ring announcer on our first show. So, I went, oh, fine, I'll do it. Because I was already doing so much comedy anyway. Um, didn't know how to get into a wrestling ring or anything like that because it's harder than it looks. And um, and I just did it, and I did bits of jokes and whatever. And, and like, so the show we did in Toronto the other day, which is my last North American show, when we stopped him doing what I'm doing, and I I did loads of jokes because I was having fun, I was enjoying it. And afterwards, people were going, "Oh, you're not re- you're a really good ring announcer." I'm, like, I'm not a ring announcer. I'm an <laughs> idiot. I'm an idiot who's got really good at yelling names and does comedy around it. And because I was so used to controlling uh, comedy audiences. And there's, there's, there's loads of really easy ways of controlling stuff. I, I try and teach this to wrestlers. So if you're doing a promo and you're a wrestler and there's one guy heckling you and heckling you and heckling you, nearly every single wrestler in the world, when they're new to it, will go louder and they'll try and shout over him and they'll try and talk over him. That doesn't work. You go quieter. You look that person dead in the eye. You make eye contact with them because it's powerful. You look them dead in the eye and you go quiet. And then they realise what they're saying. And then they shut up. And then you get on with your day. And it's uh, and people don't. It's it's it is that simple. Mm-hmm. We had one moment of a progress show where um, someone was saying some. I think it was it was sexism rather than homophobia. But someone was being sexist at one of our shows, and I called them out on it. And it's I've only ever done it a couple of times. I called them out on it, and um, they apologised, and that was that. But then everyone kind of realised that whole "don't be a dick" thing. And looking at the what shows used to look like, like. If you look what indie shows used to go, watch it, it, it you, you, like myself, you're going to have loads of old DVDs of old indie mm-hmm. shows. And wrestling fans looked a certain way and certain crowds looked a certain way. And I think one of the proudest things for me with progress shows is, uh, first of all, it's not just a load of dudes wearing black T-shirts. Yeah. Like, I mean, I say that as a dude wearing a black T-shirt. But and there are definitely dudes in black oh, T-shirts. Oh, 100%. There, but, but there's loads of women yeah, in our shows. Yeah. Um, uh, and... You know, we've the amount of messages I get from people saying, oh, you made me feel like it's a safe thing to come and watch wrestling now. And to me, I can't imagine... I've always felt safe going to watch wrestling because wrestling for me is the thing that I enjoy um, and has been my hobby since I was a kid. And 
to go and watch wrestling means I'm around people who like wrestling. Um, sometimes wrestling fans annoy me like you, you can go to some shows and there's people just shouting all kinds of shit that doesn't make any sense and whatever and you know that can be annoying but in the main I go and watch a show I'm going with my friends who like wrestling I'm going to be around other people who like wrestling I'm going to make friends I always wanted to just that was the bit I liked about wrestling I always wanted to make that a thing with progress I always wanted to be that you know I call people my friends and stuff uh, rather than saying ladies and gentlemen partly because I don't like misgendering people and partly because they are my friends mm-hmm. like that is how like I walk out there and I'm like I love this it's great this is the best day of my life because I'm, I'm hosting some wrestling and hopefully you guys are going to enjoy it so it, it's just trying to it's trying to do that trying to make everyone feel like they're part of something nice because we are like if you go back and watch ECW in like 1996 I bet nearly everybody there was friends with each other Oh and, yeah, and that crowd was definitely rowdier, and it was a different time. Yeah, it's over twenty years ago. Like they were not as politically correct as crowds are now, um, but it was a different time. Yeah. it's a different generation. But everyone there was friends, right? I've met people from the old when we did the show in ECW Arena. People who've been to shows there like twenty years ago and saying, "Oh, things have changed, but this is still part of the spirit of it." Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's the the, the fan culture is really important to me. I think that if you if you make an audience feel welcome and feel that they have ownership of something then they're always going to want to come back and support you and that's the really cool thing about all the messages I get from people is that they feel that we're making something for them which we are it's not it's not con like it we really are like if your if your fan base enjoys something and they want to react to it and they want to like there's, there's some people who there's there's a couple of guys from America who come to every single show that we do in the US and they've been to every single one mm-hmm. like that's nuts like they want to support us everywhere that we go when, when I announced my my last progress show being in December like I was talking to him after, after the show in Toronto the other day he was like well I've got to come now I'm like <laughs> really? yeah I've got to come I'll catch some time off work and I'll fly out to the UK I'm like okay that's insane but thank you yeah like, and it you know I, 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 I love wrestling and I want people to love what we do and that's all it is there's never been there's never been any cynical business model or anything like that. It's just, hey, I like this. How many of the people in the early years coming to these shows do you think were like, you know, not not necessarily even laps fans, but fans like myself that mm. were kind of like put off by some of the stuff that you'd see at these shows or, or like would go to these shows and obviously just kind of like not be able to fully engage with the crowd antics because of whatever thing? And how many of these people were like new fans that were coming to wrestling for the first time, do you think? I think, so the first show we did, we definitely... It was a weird mix. It was probably half the crowd were people who would go to anything in wrestling. Yeah. Because, the, and there wasn't that much in the, in, it, certainly in London then. No one ran in London. Was there any indie, or was it mainly just like, like there'd oh. be at like around the, the, the M25, the okay. sort of the orbital motorway around. So there'd be in Essex or Kent or wherever, and in a leisure centre, but no one tried to run in London because it was, we, you were always told it was too hard. And was anyone doing kind of like, super indie type stuff back then or is it all like mainly Butlins type sh- so companies like 1PW were doing it okay. way before us okay, yeah. um, and like Steve Carino I think was booking them like back in the day which is really crazy yeah. to know um, <laughs> I met a guy in Toronto the other day who uh, I forget his name now but he, he used to work for them and um, and they were doing they were bringing in people like AJ Styles and yeah. people like that yeah. but this is you're talking this like, is mid 2000s yeah. so it's around the time Ring of Honor was was really sort of and impact on. was kind of at its peak for yeah. their kind of stuff and so so they they were doing these big shows they did one in Doncaster Dome which uh, until we broke the record was the the largest indie show in England 
Um, I think there was maybe 2,000 people there for that, which was which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were the only ones really doing it, and they were, were very much... Because they were super indies, you'd do one show, and then everyone would want to see how crazy the next show was going to be. Yeah. Whereas our business model was, we don't have any money. Let's try and look after the talent that we've got in the UK and let's write storylines and stuff for them. So it was a mixture of cool matches. So half the card, just cool matches. Half the card, storyline stuff. Nearly everyone. We'd maybe have one import on a show. The Colt Cabana on our first show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think our next import we had was Ricochet on maybe show four or five. But the imports were never... And even the time you're booking Ricochet, he was like, you know, he's obviously incredibly mm. talented then, but like he's not the Ricochet that he was in Dragon Gate. Yeah, yeah. Like you were like the first company that seemed to be, you know, not developing your own stars, but like focused on your own stars. Mm. Like it was not, it wasn't a super indie. You weren't bringing like, in people. To- like uh, the um, like Jimmy Havoc was our our first sort of superstar. Yeah, and the company was built on on the feud between him and Will Ospreay, and it turns out me. You, yeah. um, uh, well, the company, not. That, well, is that and that chair story is true? That you you because I think that's like an amazing story if it is true about how you guys met. Like you want to get hit by a chair. So Jimmy had done. I used to do like a YouTube thing. There's still episodes of it up called the Slam. Okay, where I interviewed Mick Foley and stuff. I'm um, working for like this little internet sports TV station. And Jimmy had come in as a guest, and we got talking to him, and I realised that Jimmy is essentially, he's a few years younger than me, but he's me if I'd never quit drinking. (laughs) (laughs) So we're incredibly similar, and, you know, very much best friends. I I love him to bits. Yeah, he's been been on the show. Yeah, he's an absolutely awesome human being. I Um, introduced him to Davey Havoc. I mean, he will love you forever for that. I tell you, I expect, uh, expect, uh, you know, a move named after me at some point or something. So he's... um, and he's great. He's a great dude, yeah. And at the time, like, he was this guy who was always basically willing to get beaten up and was making other people look good, mm-hmm. always making other people look good, mm-hmm. and no one was doing anything with him. And then between uh, myself, Jimmy, John, and Glenn, we came up with this crazy two-year-long storyline um, that the company was built on that also featured a very young uh, Will Ospreay, who's now, turns out, the best wrestler in the world. Yeah. So um, it, went, it worked out pretty well for us. Um, so... The kickoff of this storyline was so Jimmy debuted on show two for us, and we already knew we were going to do it because we pretty good at planning. And the plan was to make him this lovable underdog baby face who could never win. And then eventually he was going to turn evil. We did a little thing where I gave him a contract for a title match anytime he chose, or any match anytime he chose, as a little aside and a little sort of promo that we shot at the training school. And then um, never referenced it again for about six months. Um, and then at chapter nine, uh, he comes to save me from the London riots, evil London riots. As I'm bending down to pick my hat up after he's chased them off, he hits me with a chair. Now, Jimmy will tell you this. Jimmy is a deathmatch wrestler. Uh, he's won tournament of death. Uh, he's fantastic at that, that form of the art. He's never hit anyone harder with a chair than he hit. <laughs> he killed me. He hit me so hard. Like... We were trying. We were talking about it before, and I used to tell this story on stage. So, like, we talk about it, and I, I've never, I've never taken a bump. Like, I'm, I'm not. I'm too old to learn to wrestle. Mm-hmm. I've never wanted to wrestle. I've only ever wanted to work behind the scenes. And he, <laughs> we were talking about. It, I'm like, well, so how are you going to hit me? You're obviously not going to hit me in the head because I don't trust myself to get my hands up or whatever. He went, no, I hit in the back, safe. I was like, okay. He said, well, you be, you be bending down. That's fine. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. I said, well, how am I? How am I going to, like, go down? And his exact words were, 
oh, you'll fucking go down. Yeah. Right. And I was like, okay. Um, I said, well, what's the smoke and mirrors like? Is the because I wanted to know. I was like, what's the smoke and mirrors? It's like, I mean, how are you going to do how it? How does this work? And he went, he went, let me, I'll tell you how it's going to work. I am going to hit you really fucking hard. And that's what he did. He hit me so hard that air came out of every part of my body. Like, I remember, like, all the air came out of my lungs, but it didn't just come out of my mouth and my nose. It came out of my ears and my eyes. It was, it was so hard. And... And then we had to do some other stuff. And the, the only thing we practiced was him slapping me in the face. Mm. Um, and the, the smoke and mirror's there. You know, don't listen to this bit if you don't want to know. But the smoke and mirror's there is you don't hit you in the face because it really hurts. Hit me in the neck. Right? I've got a fairly long neck. We practiced that with the same height. Hit me in the neck. He went, did that hurt? I went, yeah, a little bit. But I've been tattooed a lot, so it's fine. I'll deal with it. It'll look cool. He went, okay, I hit you like that. You go down. I went, okay, no worries. And um, so we do the thing. Um, and... Hits me with a chair, unbelievable pain. He then stamps on me a lot. Um, and I remember looking up and thinking, why is he wearing shoes? He was wearing really hard shoes. <laughs> I was like, we're meant to be friends, they're not like me. And he's stamping on me, stamping on me, stamping on me, and that, that was vaguely painful. And then uh, he said, look, I'm going to hit you with the chair here on the, on the mat, but that's not as bad. Fold your arm underneath yourself, and I'll hit you in the arm, but I'll also hit the mat. So it'll hurt a bit, but nowhere near as much as the initial one will hurt. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. So I do that, and he hits me a couple of times with the chair he then breaks the chair <laughs> but he's mid promo um, and like the promo's brilliant because with the, the whole point I said about going quiet so before he did that we were talking about it and he did that like, at one point he talks about, um, about he threatens to stab someone in the front row and the whole crowd the atmosphere goes from wrestling storyline to they wanted to riot like they absolutely wanted to kill him um, and my wife's outside crying because we told her we were going to do this but not that it was going to be so bad so she was legit crying and it, you know it's all fairly bad but he's broke this chair and the London Riots who are now his teammates they've got a cricket bat so he gets the cricket bat and starts hitting me and the first time he hits me I think oh that didn't hurt at all and you watch the replay it's because he didn't hit me he hit the mat and so there's so, and you see a look in his eyes where he goes, I must rectify this and hit him properly. And he hit me straight in the bat and it really hurt. With a cricket bat. With a cricket bat, right? Damn it. So I'm pretty battered at this point. Worse than the chair? The cricket bat must have worse than the chair. Yeah, I don't know, because the chair, I, I wasn't expecting That's anything. True, yeah. Like, <laughs> I was like, I wonder what this will feel like. Oh. Um, so then he picks me up and I'm on my knees and he stood up and we got to do the slap thing. But the problem is, is... Like your next change position. My next change position, <laughs> and you can see, watch. You know, like when a golfer tries to measure their shot, you can see him. If you watch it, you can see him measure it as if to go well. And we're both nervous. We're both shaking. I remember him holding me, up and we're both shaking because I've never done anything like that before. And even though I'm a performer, I've not never done anything like that. Oh, it's it a big deal. Yeah. And you know, people are like in tears. Like it's it, it, honestly, it's the coolest thing I've ever done. Like I still, it's one of the best things I've ever done in any form of entertainment ever nothing will I don't think anything will ever top it because it made my it made my entire career and it, it, it helped make Jimmy's career which was already great um, but he he hit me and instead of hitting me in the neck he hit me with a cupped hand over my left ear and knocked me out so I didn't need to worry about going down again I just went boom and like 30 seconds later I come round and Glenn and my wife are over me in the ring because I don't know where I was <laughs> and people are booing and the whole thing's going crazy my wife covered like a, like a proper pro covered my face with her hair and went are you okay and I was like yeah it didn't look cool and she went nah, shut up dickhead and <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she's crying or whatever and you know, I get I get carried out and it's amazing 
Um, fast forward to about five years later, I've had problems like whenever I'm driving, I've been right-hand drive cars in the UK. My wife will sit in the passenger seat to the left of me. And if the radio's on and she's talking, I struggle to hear her. So I go to the doctor's. I'm thinking, oh, my ears need syringing or something like that. I go to the doctor's and the doctor, um, doctor looks at my ear and goes... Um, yeah, you've you've got a hole in your eardrum. Open that clap, <laughs> thunderclap. Went, your ear. Went, have you ever been hit in the head? I went, no, I'm. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, so that was it. So I'll make you up the YouTube clip for you, sir. <laughs> I lost about like thirty percent of my hearing in my ear. Wow. Ear. So now, yeah, never take another bump. Never. never. I mean, it was worth it. <laughs> it was definitely it was one worth of, it. The next show sold out in twenty-seven seconds. So you know, you mentioned Jimmy, huge talent, like Will Ospreay. You know, mm-hmm. arguably the best wrestler in the whole world at this point. Uh, you know, uh, there's so many Pete Dunne, like so many people mm. who came through there. How much of that do you think is just like an untapped talent pool that had been building up for years? And how much is it the fact that these guys had a chance to develop into the people they were as performers? I, I think I think a lot of it is down to the talent pool because, and, and don't forget, like we get we get given a lot of the credit. Progress gets given a lot of the credit for what what's happened in the UK, but it's not just us. You know, we did great. ICW have done great. Mm-hmm. Rev Pro have done great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Attack, which is uh, Pete Dunne and Mark Andrews' company, has done great. Fight Club Pro, which is Trent Seven's company, has done great. Um, uh, I'm bound to have missed another company that's Pro done Wrestling great. Eve's doing really Pro well. Pro and Eve doing yeah. wonderful things. Um, like these are all great companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, like, so we started doing pretty well and selling out quicker and quicker and having to move to a bigger venue. ICW started on the same thing. Rev Pro started having the same thing. It all started just kicking off, you know. And these a lot of these companies have been going longer than this. Fight Club Pro's been going longer than, than Progress and was running a little cricket club in front of like fifty people, and then moved to a bigger venue, and then a bigger venue, and now the venue that's in now, which holds like seven, eight hundred people. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden, it, it wasn't just that we had this amazing untapped talent pool. We also had this amazing fan base that was having to wait until WWE came twice a year. Yeah. That was pretty much all they were getting because for a long time, like you either had holiday camp shows, which are great. Holiday camp shows are a brilliant way for people to develop. Like you wouldn't have characters like Liguero who've you know wrestled three hundred times a year. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have people like you wouldn't have um, Daniel Bryan without yeah, the camps. Cole Cabana talks yeah, about that. Chris Hero. Yeah, like you wouldn't have yeah. the, the, these. All that is incredibly important because much as we run a company that's adults only. Um, like you still have to be able to rest in the shows in Toronto there was kids in the show mm-hmm. I made one cry by accident but like <laughs> but like you need kids to come to wrestling shows because how are you ever going to have any more wrestling fans absolutely like, 100% I went, I went to watch British wrestling in Granby Halls which has long since been destroyed in Leicester with my grandmother yep. so I could watch Johnny Saint and Rollable Rocco like I needed to go to that when I was a little kid mm-hmm. in order to become a WWE fan mm-hmm. and then become an indie wrestling fan and a Japanese wrestling fan and whatever you need that um so, um, so yeah, we've got this. For a long time, if you ran an indie show, the indie show would be uh, some British guys and maybe one guy in his forties who used to be famous on TV guy, yeah. and yeah. and and the whole show was run around the photo opportunity with that one guy. Yeah, it wasn't run around these amazing guys who um, who were brilliant at wrestling, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And like Will Ospreay made his debut for us when he was 18. His first match with us, his tag team partner broke his leg in the middle of the match, and Will had to wrestle on his own. And that's the point where you watch that and go, oh, he's good, isn't he? So did you know back then that he was going to be this good? Um, I knew it was going to be good. I mean, I think always when he, when he said he wanted to go to Japan, it was like, yep, you're going to do great there. Yeah. And he clearly did great there straight away. I, I think he's so good that it 
even in his own head, and he knows how good he is, even in his own head, he wouldn't have expected to be as good as he is. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? The same with Pete. Like, yeah. I, think we're, I think the two best wrestlers in the world are both British. Mm-hmm. So I think Pete Dunne and Will Ospreay are the two best wrestlers in the world right now. I think they're and very different wrestlers, mm-hmm. but I think they are astonishingly good. And it's funny because you could have that argument with a lot of wrestlers from mm. the UK. Right yeah. now, like you could, there's a lot of people that you could say, like, well, this guy's unbelievable, this person's unbelievable, and it's, it's like you're saying, and it, it feels like, it just felt like there was, there was just out of nowhere, as like yeah. a wrestling fan, out of nowhere, it's like, holy shit, there's all these people, and then you'd find out, like, oh, there's this guy Jordan Devlin, too, oh, there's this other mm-hmm. person here, and you're just like constantly, like, well, you think about it as well, from like 17 million people, um, in this tiny little country, and, 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 and there will be a point where we have a little bit of a dip. Mm-hmm. It's not happening yet, um, but you know, so much talent and such a. And you look at you know, I went to take over the other day, and in Toronto, and Pete Dunn's there and he's absolutely killing it. And then they cut to the crowd shot, and then there's Tyler Bate, who's also amazing, and Walter, who even though he's Austrian, mm-hmm. lives in Germany, mm-hmm. is one hundred percent part of the British wrestling scene because. And the British wrestling scene is very tied in with the European one because, even though Europe's massive, the hotbeds are the UK and Germany. Yeah. And everywhere else has kind of got one or two promotions. Like Progress is going to do a show in Paris in a couple of weeks' time. Which Spain is cool. had some stuff kicking off too. Yeah, right? so uh, A Kid and yeah, uh, Carlos yeah. Romo's company, uh, White Wolf, uh, which is a great company, and they've had great stuff because A Kid is a fantastic wrestler, and he because it's his company, he's managed to go okay. So he's had in the course of this year, Zack Sabre Junior, who's also one of the best wrestlers <laughs> yeah. in the world, uh, uh, Will Ospreay and Pete Dunne in singles matches. Yeah, and he's lost all three, but he's looked like a superstar in all of them. Because he is a superstar, he's fantastic, and and it's just I think you have to be you have to be so enthusiastic at, at, at going after cool things when they happen. The problem we've had in the UK is that for all the good companies that have sprung up, maybe three or four years ago, some companies just started going, "Oh, this is an easy way to make money." Yeah. So I'm just going to spoil it for people here. If you want to make money, indie wrestling is not the way. <laughs> Do you, there is there is not a lot of money there. Oh, the margins are I can imagine yeah, incredibly like, tight. Progress Talent is, costs must be insane. Progress is a profitable company, yeah, right. Which I'm led to believe is rare. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a point where you know we sold out every show for like seven years. Like it, the last show didn't sell out. We were twenty short of a sellout, and that's the first one. And immediately got fans going. The end is nigh. It's not. It's the <laughs> summer. <laughs> it's all it is. There's still 680 people at a show. You do realise when we started, yeah. people were happy to have 50 people at a show. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it, it's it's nuts. But with the there is the danger of oversaturation because when there's a lot of a good thing, people just go. We can just have a show every day. Mm-hmm. You can't. You know. You can't do it every day. You can't all do arenas. We did Wembley Arena once because we wanted to do it. We sold 5,000 tickets. That was great. And they were never going to do it again. <laughs> really? Nah, it's too, too, too stressful. Too stressful, yeah. Like, it was a cool thing to do and have a, a you know, I've got a, a, a very little wrestling related stuff on my wall at home. I've got the one thing, I've got um, uh, a picture of the card for our show at Wembley last September. Uh, a little thing at the bottom says the highest attended uh, independent wrestling show in England for 40 years since the days of World of Sport. Since the show at Wembley Arena, funnily enough, um, between Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. Um, it was the best attended show in England for that point, uh, outside of a WWE show. Yeah, that's and great. It, and it didn't require a superstar from America headlining. It was built by the main event was Walter and Tyler Bate. Yeah, um, you know we had guys who were signed to WWE because of the NXT UK thing. So you know half our roster signed to NXT UK. So we had those guys on it. And we had Matt Riddle come and do it right before he made his debut. 
because he wanted to do it. <laughs> and he'd already been a Peter wrestled Progress before, no? What's that? Do you have Progress wrestling? Riddle, Riddle yeah, yeah, yeah. He was our yeah, so it was like, and it's like even all those NXT UK guys, like they were Progress people before they were NXT UK. 100%. There's, there's no. I can't think of an example of anyone we use because they're in NXT UK. Yeah. Like we, it's the, they're Progress people who happen to have a pretty sweet deal with working for NXT UK as well. Yeah. Like, um, you know, it's like it was amazing. Pete Dunn tweeted this yesterday. So Pete is we're doing a show on September the fifteenth at Alexandra Palace, and Pete's on it. And uh, we tweeted that Pete was on it, and one guy tweeted, "I think this is proof of the uh, progress NXT UK uh, partnership." It's like <laughs> I work there. Like, and Pete tweeted it. You know the Zach Galifianakis trying to work out maths. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pete just replied to, and because Pete's such a serious guy, when he's funny, it's really funny. He just replied to it with that, and I've never laughed so hard. It's like people every now and again, someone will go, "Oh, it's a conspiracy." There's no conspiracy. I work in two places. Like I, I work for Progress. I work for NXT UK. It's not. It, it's there's no conspiracy here. You don't have to be Dave Meltzer to figure that out. <laughs> it's like it's really easy to figure out. Like when I when I announced that I was retiring from Progress, like I did a Q and A immediately after it to stop any of this stuff dead. People yeah. going, "What are you going to do instead?" Well, I'm still going to work in wrestling. Yeah. I have a job, <laughs> like and and I have a job that I love dearly. I, I love Progress dearly. I love that dearly. But I'm going to do that for a bit now. That is all it is. But people, they're so desperate to try and find some kind of secret link. There's no secret link. I mean, you spent a couple of hours with me. <laughs> yeah, there's literally no secret. No, there's no. Like, there's none at all. Because no. there's no point having any. It's just wrestling. It's fun. When, like, how? Soon into it, did the punk rock wrestling thing come into it? Was that right off the first chapter? No, it was. We it was this. So I'm I'm a big believer. In it. I never wanted to give us that moniker ourselves because I'm aware of the inherent problems that you have with. It's a loaded term. Well, so we will use hashtag not punk whenever I might tweet about a song I like <laughs> because. I will in for there's a lot it doesn't happen so much now because I think we've taken ownership of it from a humour point of view. Yeah. But for a long time we just had people going, Well it's not very punk, is it? Well <laughs> Well, first of all, it's a fucking subjective thing. Yeah. Like, um, you know, like in the same way that uh the clash are a punk band, they're a very different punk band and minor threat. Yeah. Like and you can't the minute that people the minute that people get obsessed with being more punk than you, they become tedious human beings. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the, you should never have that sliding scale of the same as being straight edge. You know, you know. I told you this before. Like, I've had people tell me that I'm not straight edge because I drink caffeine, for example. Yeah. Well, I don't drink a lot of it, and also, come on. The motto <laughs> of this podcast is everybody's somebody's poser. Correct. Because there's no way to outpunk everyone. No, precisely. So, um, and I think we've been described as it in maybe a newspaper article or something like that. And one way that we used to try and I always did deal with the press for the company. And we don't do much press. Like, I don't do many podcasts. I only do podcasts with people I like. I don't... Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, slash people whose bands I listen to while writing. <laughs> oh, wait. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so, I, I, don't do, I don't do many podcasts. I'm not... I'm a very private person when I'm not at work. I, I keep myself to myself. And I... Um, I think we'd done some... I did all... Because I, I do all the press, I did something where we got described as that. And it was because... I tried to give people like a Venn diagram of what being at our shows was like. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it's a little bit ECW Arena in 1996. It's a little bit um, being in the away end at a football match. Because mm-hmm. we're all, the three of us are all football fans. And it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit being a punk gig. And that's how I tried to describe it. 
Yeah. And, you know, because I look like this as well, all the tattoos and everything, people went, yes. And that was the thing. And then we were like, oh. And we were very initially very reluctant to actually use it as our own description. Because, again, it had been a loaded term and people reacting to it the wrong way. And then we realised we could do it. And, and we kind of we went on board with it and it was on the back of our t-shirts for a long time mm-hmm. kind of stopped doing it so much recently just because we moved on rather than anything else um, but for me with my sort of upbringing of you know being told hey you can't you can't do this and me always harking back to these bands in 1976 and 1977 1978 we went ah, fuck it we can you know that was the same thing with wrestling we were told you can't do this well we can you can't do shows in London fuck you we can um, you can't run a company with mainly British wrestlers. That's not how it's done. Fuck you, we can't. Mm-hmm. Like that was, uh, and also, three people, all of all three of us, dirt poor. Not <laughs> from wrestling too. Yeah, and not from wrestling. Dirt poor. Going, well, let's just scrape together. I got a bank loan. Just yeah, put my part of it in. Like nope. just scrape together the money to try and do this, and we did it. I had the same attitude with comedy. I was always told, no, you can't do this. You can't quit your good job to do comedy. Yes, I can. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I wrote my book, like. You can't you can't write a book about history of wrestling. Yeah, I can. I can and will, and people will buy it. Fuck you. <laughs> like I, I'm I'm not good at people telling me what I can and can't do. And 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 that was to me even outside of what the shows felt like and the, what the atmosphere has always been like at the shows and how crazy that is, which is part of the punk feel for it. The big punk thing for me is this was three people who just went, we don't know what we're doing. Let's do it. Yeah. That to me is is the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I'll always be most proud of. Like as I am about to walk away from it, um, and it's not, it's not because I don't enjoy it. It's, it's just because I've I I have to make a choice now, having a, a small child of of what I choose to do. And I feel we've done something great, and it's great to be able to walk away from it on my own terms and go, look how cool that was. Because I walk away <laughs> at chapter one hundred and go, look at that, what a nice round number. One hundred chapters of really really good wrestling that. Not just people in... We only thought people in London would ever watch it. Yeah. You know, when you told me before that you bought one of our DVDs, back when we used to only make like 150 DVDs, mm-hmm. you bought one of them. Like, that's crazy. Like, the fact that you know who I am and you live in Toronto is nuts. Like, it, it's it's insane. But I think it speaks to how hungry the wrestling world was for what you were offering. There was a lot of fans out there like myself, you mm. know, like a lot of people that love the sport, love the art form, but didn't love the culture in 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 North America specifically and from my experience but it mm. sounds like also in the UK that it kind of like been fostered around and, mm. and it was just like something so new yeah you know? it, it's it's still crazy having done so many shows in North America as well um it's crazy like that I've never really had to tell people to behave in America mm. they've just got it it's like they've watched a version of our shows and they so the first show we ever did in America was oh they were copying the chance yeah it was wild it, it was like everyone nuts. knew everyone's chance everyone knew it, it's it, apart from pronouncing progress wrong um, uh, <laughs> so when I say progress it like does it send like nah, not at all you know like I, oh I, fuck that drives me nuts don't uh, do that not at all no I, I it, it, it's it's crazy that and the same went to Australia as well where again very different culture and everyone was like no we know how to behave we know when Jim says there's one rule of progress what do we shout we all shout don't be a dick yeah. and everyone's nice to each other like it, it's that's such a cool thing as well as like having shows that I'm a wrestling fan like the purpose with progress and again I think this is the, the punk thing behind it was never hey let's run these shows and make money 
It was never, the, and it's not just for us. I think that's the same with all the other big companies that I mentioned in the UK that have all gone on to be successful. Not a single one of those companies has gone into it with a capitalist viewpoint of, hey, maybe we'll make some money out of this. Mm-hmm. They probably all make money now mm-hmm. because they've gone into it the right way, which is, hey, let's make shows that people are really fucking like. That's what we should be doing. We'll do that. So you make shows that people like, uh, and then people enjoy your products. That's what you should do. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the same if you're a musician. You, you've got to make stuff that you like, but then in theory, if you like it, other people are going to like it. When we've been booking shows, we just look at it and go, hey, what we like? Would you want to watch this? Yeah. It's such a basic principle. Like, it was never, hey, what would make us money? It was, hey, what would I want to watch as a fan? Mm-hmm. And that's how we started, because when we started, we didn't think we made money. So we just, we just like, let's get from show to show. And that seems to be a winning formula. And all the other companies that have been a success in the UK and the US as well have, have done that. Like, like PWG have definitely done that for years. I'm a huge PWG fan. PWG just go, hey, what do we want to watch? This. Sick. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to have an on-demand. We don't care. Yeah. But I, and and I, I really, I like that. Yeah. I think that's a, the right way of doing it. And I've always tried to, appro- and I know John and Glenn are the same, we've always tried to approach progress with the point of view of, hey, what do we want to watch? And I think if you do that, you're fine. But the minute you start going, hey, what would sell a load of tickets, it comes a lot harder, you know? Because that's how people people think that's how you men think about Especially it. Especially now, right? Wrestling's changed. Like, it's so weird, you know, 100 chapters later, what mm. wrestling looked like then versus now. Mm. I wouldn't have been able to predict all the stuff that was going to happen. No, God, no. I remember listening to a podcast, and it was, like, around that time where it was, like, it was almost like wrestling's over, you know? Like, yeah. it would be, like, there's, there's going to be WWE, and then there's going to be MMA, mm-hmm. and that'll be what's happened. And like you know, indie wrestling emerged. Yeah, it's and it's crazy for me because I was like, I used to buy like tapes and stuff. Yeah, because that was the only way. Like, oh, I, that was the only way to get the Japanese stuff. It was the only way to get Japanese stuff. Like, I had to have an NTSC video recorder yeah. in my bedroom at home when I was a university student. And because it was a time when I, I, I talk about this in my book, I fell out of love with wrestling for a little bit. Like between the age of 13 and 20, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I remember being about 12 or 13 and The Undertaker wrestling. Now, I love The Undertaker now because I've been to a lot of WrestleManias where he's had amazing matches. Mm-hmm. But, like, when I was a teenager, and Vince McMahon said one line on commentary once, I think he said the phrase, he sat up after something and he went, oh, We're not entirely sure if The Undertaker is alive or dead. And I just went, Nope, done. Yeah. I didn't watch wrestling again for years. And then the next time I watched it was in 1998 and I was 20. And um, I'm flicking through Sky Sports and the replay of King of the Rings on, and I just put Sky Sports on just as Mick Foley's being thrown off the top of that on the song. And now Mick's a friend because I've supported him on comedy tours and well, I'm tattooed on my arm. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> I, I, um, I saw that and was like, holy shit. And then the next day I was at university, I was sat in like the computer lab at university because it's the only way you could go on the internet. And I, I'm just like, looking for as much stuff as possible and going through and like reading up about people I've not thought about for years I've got this weird thing like in my brain where I'll be like and the same with music as well I'll be like oh I haven't thought about this band for so <laughs> the other day I thought about a British band called the 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster who I haven't thought about for you've stumped me with that I don't even know that band a crazy psychobilly sort of band okay right? I hadn't thought about them for ages I've seen them live like three or four times haven't thought about them for ages and then just became obsessed with listening to them again for like a couple of days do you ever see Leatherface no or Mega City 4 any of those bands Mega City 4 I know of but I've never okay. seen them okay um, but yeah so I, <laughs> I I was like I need to do everything I, really <laughs> I, remember, I remember very specifically like reading everything the big boss man had ever done yeah. I was like oh, this is the best and I, I just ended up like just falling massively back into it in this huge way and then 
just just going on tape trading sites and just like I had a job while I was at university and spending all my money on like all Japan stuff and whatever and and then my fandom went insane and then I had to keep it secret because mm-hmm. I had a real job came out of university got a job in the fashion industry and uh, it wasn't cool like wrestling no yeah so I'd, like, I'd turn up after a pay-per-view on like a Monday morning like exhausted because I'd stay up live to watch the pay-per-view uh, and also make sure I could tape it because I couldn't trust my video recorder to work without me operating it <laughs> <laughs> and I'd come into work and they'd be like why are you so tired oh I just insomnia I am an insomniac anyway but still I just have to just cover it up yeah. and it was only when I started comedy that I met people like my friend Chris Brooker who runs Future Shock in the UK um, who first introduced me to William Regal and to Mick Foley like it was only when I met guys like him I realised that being a wrestling fan's kind of fine in comedy it's yeah. kind of okay yeah um, and now in fashion look at Kylie Jenner's wearing fucking NWO shirts like you know it's like a different day <laughs> it's it's just like it, it always felt like something that was a weird thing to discuss it would have been easy mm-hmm. for me to go to work and talk about my sexual fetishes than I think we were talking about wrestling even in like certain punk circles it was like you watch wrestling mm. you know it was like there's definitely punk circles where it was championed and, yeah. and firmly believed in but like it wasn't like today where no, I, and this is the thing like so I'll if I'm in a, a, a an Uber or something like that um, so I haven't been in Toronto obviously I was, I was here for Progress and I was here for Takeover and um, and having people say oh what, what do you do oh I work in wrestling oh, and, and nearly every Uber driver or any <laughs> will go either go I love wrestling or they will at least say I used to love wrestling yeah. Yeah. Uh, I used to love wrestling I used to watch Stone Cold Steve Austin right and so everyone has some kind of touchstone of it. Mm-hmm. Like, even for me, like my first, my first wrestler I watched when I was a kid was Johnny Saint, and I just watched him tying people in knots when I was four years old in 1982, and went, <laughs> yeah, he, him, I like him. Yeah. Um, and now, 78 year old Johnny Saint, I work with him, which is crazy, <laughs> and he's my friend and he lives near me, and and I drive him around, which is nuts, um, and. Like it's such a weird full circle thing for me, but but nearly every British person, if they're older than me, even if they're not familiar with WWE, will go Big Daddy Giant Haystacks mm-hmm. because they used to get twenty million people watching them. Mm-hmm. It's such a big part of every. And older people will like anyone who grew up in the fifties in in North America will know you know Gorgeous George or these or Bruno Sammartino. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like there's always these cultural touchstones. And I think we're at we're at a point now where yeah, wrestling isn't as big as it was during the Attitude Era. Um, but there's always going to be these peaks and troughs, you know. And, and I think it's it's always such an important part of culture. And I, I, anyone who denies ever watching it and enjoying it, I find I, I've never. Even my wife not being a wrestling fan, I watch a lot of wrestling at home because I have to. And she'll walk in when I'm watching it, and I can tell when she likes stuff and when she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Some stuff's not for her. Like she is not going to enjoy. Uh, Shoot star UWFI from early nineties Japan. It's just not for her. <laughs> she's not gonna get. She's not gonna get it. No one's anyone kicked in the face. You no, know, she's not gonna get that. Um, you know, she's not necessarily gonna enjoy me watching Tournament of Death. No. Um, but you know, there's some stuff that she can get. She can watch that. that, that for example, I know when she sees the uh, Paul Robinson Walter match that we had in Toronto the other day, mm-hmm. she'll dig that. Mm-hmm. Like, That's, it's also about live wrestling too. Like being there, yeah. experiencing that energy. I'm. Will you come back for a part two at some point, Jim? Because it's been amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I've had you. I'm keeping you from a very important meeting, so I should <laughs> let you go. But this has been awesome to talk to you, man. Like, uh, this is a genuine pleasure. Oh, uh, and um, yeah, I mean, bear in mind we spoke for like two hours before we did the. No, and I, I also think like yeah, like we've been <laughs> hanging out all day, and I, it, but it's funny because like 
don't know, it was just so cool to watch happen. Yeah. Like, as a fan, to watch progress kind of become what it became and just be like, oh, it's, it's, it's by fans who know what the fans want. Hmm. And also just see all these guys emerge, you know, people that are now all over the world. And, you know, and, and as you said, there's a huge scene in the UK. It wasn't just progress. But at the same time, like, that's where a lot of us in North America heard about it. Well, yeah, I, I think we made it more because I'd done stand up in America and stuff. So I think we made it more appealing to we, we, we're less. It feels like we're less regional, even though we're very British. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's easier for you to sort of latch on to watching us, even if you're from the States. Um, but again, like you mentioned, the, the talent pool, like we That's were crazy. lucky enough to have that like if we hadn't we'd be nothing without the wrestlers that we've had like it, it, it's like the amount of times that people will say really sweet things to me and they'll give me a lot of credit for stuff uh, first of all I can't take any sole credit for anything in progress because there's three of us and mm. on top of that it's three of us and the best talent that we could possibly wish for like if we didn't have that talent at our disposal we wouldn't have achieved anything oh, it's, yeah. so you know we we're incredibly lucky to be blessed with that and now what's really cool is that because we've done what we've done, people are now still fall over themselves to work for us. That's yeah. really cool. Like, you know, when um, Andy Williams worked for us the other day and like, every time I die, one of my favourite bands and he's done something for us before. He powerbombed Jimmy at Download Festival a few years ago and, you know, the fact that we could get him to come and work for us and he was so stoked to work for us and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm stoked for you to work for us. But it's crazy that it still means something for people because, again, to me, every time I think about it, I don't think about 5,000 people at Wembley Arena. I, I don't think about any of that. All I think about is that first show, struggling to sell 300 tickets and how that felt. Like, it, 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 I, I still view the company as that size. It's just we've got to go on and do crazy things. And it's, it's, it's always going to be nuts to me that anyone outside of, like, the M25 knows who we are. Mm. <laughs> well, it's been amazing, dude. Anytime you. you want to come back, I'm probably just going to come back to Toronto anywhere and live here. You can you move into this practice space. Your family can fit. We can do like. I'm, I'm all seriousness. I think in December. Um, I know it's going to be colder here than it is now, but I think in December, me and my family are going to come back because oh, I, I love it. Here. You're bringing you're bringing the hardest sell time of year. <laughs> <laughs> where I live's cold and wet anyway. So that's true. Yeah, you know, that's true. I just I, I I've never been to a city where I felt so at home. So yeah, I can I can see me coming back here a lot. I'll just go. I'll move in next to you, mate. Then we can just. That'd be awesome. <laughs> That'd be awesome. You don't need to get in a record collection. You just can use mine. <laughs> there we go. Easy. Thank you, Jim, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Jim will be back for a part two at some point down the line because that's what we do here. You know, we promise part twos and then. You know, they, they, don't, they, they rarely come. Let's be honest. They rarely come. Like, it's it's wild. Like, I was like, oh, I'm going to do so many more part twos this year. And I got in a streak of doing part twos. But then there's so many part ones to get to. And you just, yeah. Anyway, I digress. I digress. Uh, I want to also say while I'm here, you can please uh, send a uh, email to turnedoutapunkfootnotes at gmail.com if you'd like to send in any mail to the podcast, we're going to be doing a turn out a punk super show very soon. And I want to make sure that, uh, we have some mail to discuss. So please send in all your emails, questions about the podcast, uh, guest suggestions, um, things you think we should discuss on the turn out a punk super show, because that's what we like to do. Discuss these things. Uh, and next week on the show, 
Heather Gable will be on one half of the Chicago-based duo Hyde, and someone who uh, I'm a big fan. I've been a big fan of this band Hyde. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, Heather is someone who intersects with like a lot of different punk worlds, and we this this conversation goes a lot of different places. It's a really fun one, and that is next episode. I said next week, but next episode, you know, because you never know when I'm going to drop these things. I might try and drop them early, but more than likely it'll probably be next week. Anyway, that's it. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, go out there and make your own car culture, sign your organ donor cards, and I will see you all next episode. Bye. <laughs>